Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Today, we're going to dig deep into a crucial topic that touches many of our lives, addiction. Understanding and addressing addiction is a complex journey, and in our community, there are remarkable programs that are paving the way for change and support. In the first half of our show, we'll have Emily Wadden from SWAP. Now, the SWAP program, or Safe Work Access Program, is a pioneering harm reduction initiative led by the AIDS Committee of Newfoundland and Labrador. It provides critical health promotion and education services for people who use drugs. From offering clean supplies for substance use to providing naloxone kits and training, SWAB works from a harm reduction and public health perspective, and they strive to meet people where they are. In the second half of the show, we'll be joined by Jeff Bourne from the U-Turn Drop-In Center in Carbonier, Newfoundland. U-Turn is another key program in our community. It offers unique resources and support for those grappling with addiction. Jeff shares his story and why he's such a passionate advocate for addiction therapy, as well as peer support counseling. Together, we'll explore how these programs contribute to coping with addiction in our communities and what resources are available for those that are suffering. So stay tuned as we unfold these insightful discussions. We're going to shed light on the efforts being made to help individuals battling addiction and the various paths available for recovery and for support. Hi, Emily. Welcome to the show. Hey, Mike, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate you joining us. This is a topic that a lot of people are hearing about. They might not really truly understand. And I think that today we have a real opportunity to be able to explain that for people. Before we get into the challenges that we may be facing in our community, can you explain what SWAP is and how you support the people that you service? So SWAP, or the Safe Works Access Program, is a program under the AIDS Committee of Newfoundland and Labrador all of which is located inside the Tommy Sexton Center in Pleasantville. We also have mobile services in the Clarenville Bonavista area and again in the Cornerbrook area further west. SWAP serves the entire province though, not always in person, but we do what we can to make it work. So SWAP was put in place to provide people who use drugs with the necessary materials, supplies needed, if you will, to use them safely and ensure that there's no spread of infection and stuff like that because realistically it's not always the drugs that are the issue frequently it's contaminated needles that are being reused or shared among folks that type of thing and we can buy a lot of needles for the cost of a hep c treatment so that is one part of our program you know distributing supplies um fairly black and white we have a number of we call them satellite sites around town obviously my office is in pleasantville and that is far away from any neighborhood or group of users downtown so we we don't try to get people down there we have gone to them essentially so be it organizations nonprofits like you know choices gathering place women's center we've recently included pharmacies so many pharmacies distribute smoking supplies and injection supplies some just do naloxone only some do all of it but that's their prerogative their initiative and yeah essentially we're at a point where we're happy to get supplies anywhere and everywhere so that is I guess what the program is built upon or why it was started. And now another, I guess, crucial, equally as important part of the program is doing things like this, going out and providing presentations or trainings, answering questions, anything. You know, we certainly try our best to, you know, if we don't have a presentation about it yet, we will do our best to absolutely make one up because we do recognize that we really are the only group or program in the province that's full-time primary goal is serving people who use drugs. Obviously, many people who use drugs, you know, frequent other organizations, but this is our main task and our sole goal is to make folks feel comfortable. 
Yeah. So when I think about that, you know, there's a couple of different routes people take with drugs. And the, the one that people always think about is just abstain from drugs. But that's not a reality for a lot of people because of their circumstances or the patterns that they're in. But you guys do harm reduction. And in particular, when it comes to the fentanyl crisis, why is harm reduction an important strategy to use in this community? So as far back in time, humans have wanted to alter their brain chemistry. That's nothing new, be it with caffeine or maybe like alcohol that folks would really consider to be one of the most common drugs out there. So that's nothing new. So we're foolish to think that that wouldn't continue through time, through history. Those particularly that have, you know, been entrenched in this lifestyle have had really, really traumatic experiences in more formal systems, be it health, be it justice. And oftentimes all of these larger systems, their programs, even if they don't say it explicitly, they frequently push abstinence. Again, they might not say it outright, but the language used and what's being done absolutely supports abstinence. Obviously, one thing is not going to work for everybody. I think that's across categories and this being no different. We cannot expect the goal of abstinence. So it's important from our perspective, we don't determine somebody's goal. You, Oftentimes in other programs and spaces, you know, that's kind of predetermined, right? You're going to say to this program for X period of time, and at the end, you're expected to not use drugs anymore or not want to use drugs anymore. So harm reduction, while on the same, you know, continuum, because we are, we are not in opposition of one another, but harm reduction supports everybody. The only thing that matters to us is safety. That is at the tenant of all this, because people are going to use drugs. That's what it is. And... That's really important because that's a big deal. That encourages health. Any positive change, be it using a new needle every time. So anything and everything is celebrated in harm reduction and it's 100% guided by the person who's using drugs. And that's one of the questions that come up. Like, you know, I, I think I'm coming from a very outside perspective on this, yep. but are we facing a greater challenge when it comes to drugs in our community right now? Have they changed in their potency or their addictiveness or any of those challenges? Or has this always been an issue that we face in our community? I think we're more aligned now, unfortunately, with the rest of Canada. Obviously, things further west have been significantly worse, in all honesty, for many years now, right? And it seems like we, we kind of just joined those ranks back when, I think it was in late July, early August, when news was published around many deaths, several deaths. And, you know, that was something we hadn't really seen before. So I think COVID was a catalyst for that because generally speaking, obviously, to move drugs, you want to move the smallest packages possible. So typically what that does is to pack the biggest punch in the smallest package. And that is where, you know, something like lab created fentanyl comes in, right? Because you would have to bring in so many pills to equal the same potency, for example, as a little brick or whatever of fent. So it's reasons like that, that yes, that has impacted the drug supply itself, made it very unpredictable. Fentanyl has many, many analogs. You know, folks quite literally in labs across the world, they can tweak it one little bit to make another analog, right? They're not really running out of options because in parts of the world, these things are not illegal yet, right? So by the time the government works to ban it, they can just tweak it a little bit. So all of these things, COVID as well, have had an impact that we are now seeing in the unpredictable potency of our drugs. Yes, drugs have absolutely gotten stronger, in all honesty, but that that's something that's been happening incrementally 
for many years now. Sure, it's kind of maybe just been publicized really deeply and quite literally everywhere. But again, this has all been happening slowly behind the scenes. My colleagues and I, you know, we've been waiting for this. We, it wasn't a matter of it. We get a whole bunch of overdoses, deaths, etc. It's not an if, it was always a when. So there absolutely is significant challenges, among which the unpredictability of the drug supply. That is by and far one of the biggest challenges now and the most dangerous piece of all of this, unfortunately. Well, uh, yeah, and that's one of the things that I think when you think about the potency of these drugs, the likelihood of overdose, which is where those deaths have come by recently, what we've heard about in the media on the West Coast of Canada, for example, how are you guys helping individuals reduce the risk of an adverse event like that? I don't think there's one foolproof plan. The biggest and most important thing that, no, it doesn't mitigate, you know, overdoses, but it mitigates the chances of deaths, is not using alone. Obviously, yes, we absolutely recognize that drug use is so stigmatized and it's not feasible for everybody to always have somebody here or next to them because oftentimes this is done in secrecy, it's done in isolation. There is also a Canadian service that I, I have to take the opportunity to highlight. It's called NORS, and anybody basically, you can phone them, and they they stay on the phone with you as you use drugs. You know, there's a predetermined plan in place. No, they do not have to call 911. If an overdose occurs, they can call whoever you designated as their safe person. And that has made a big difference across Canada, because there are so many isolated communities that are smaller in our geography in particular, we are very unique in that way, and we have even more space, more distance between everything. So services like that, where you might be physically alone, those things are the big lifesavers. Most people who unfortunately die of drug-related deaths, i.e. overdose, they are alone. Because you can't administer naloxone to yourself, which again brings us to the third equally as important, I would say, portion of this. Sure, it doesn't prevent an overdose. No, it doesn't. But these things are going to ensure that you don't die. So we give folks these things, these suggestions, whatever, and each one of them decreases the chance of death ultimately. Because again, the drug supply is so unpredictable that no, you can't necessarily stop an overdose, right? Like sure, you know, starting low, whatever, but that's that's not realistic. So it's more so about ensuring people don't die because nobody who uses drugs deserves to die. Well, you mentioned something there that I want to go into, and that is, you know, let's first describe what it is, but naloxone. A lot of people have heard of it, but they may not actually understand yep. what it is. Can you explain what it is and then why these kits are available? So naloxone is a medication that reverses the effects of an opioid overdose. It is the answer in cases of opioid overdoses. And it's the only answer. So the provincial take-home naloxone programs, they're just that. They're provincial in nature. And ours was rolled out in 2017. The kits are available so that anybody and everybody can be prepared to respond to an opioid overdose. Maybe you know people who use drugs. Maybe you don't know that because oftentimes drug use is embarrassing. There is a lot to lose. People cannot go out and scream from the mountaintops that they use drugs because there can be social, professional, et cetera, consequences to that. So the kits are available through NL Health Services and through us and free because, again, it's about getting them out in the community. They don't do anything on our shelves. So when you're on the front lines for these challenges that our community is facing, you must have to collaborate with different groups. For example, I could think like 
government partners, local authorities, the health services, like who do you work with to help these programs be effective? All of them, honestly. Yeah. All of, you know, we certainly couldn't do this without our community partners. And there are 50 something at this point that I cannot name all of. Um, But we depend on that because, again, we recognize that, you know, we're in the corner of Pleasantville. We are not in an accessible location. So in order to put drug supplies in places where people are actually going to, we have to depend on other community groups or some health-related businesses. Also, government, they play a fairly crucial role being the funder, sure, but we do have their support, which obviously ensures that there's a level of respect there. And because of that, you know, we honestly haven't faced the threat of closure or we know that we are not going to be not funded come next year. So those things are crucial because a lot of this as well, it it is relationships on both sides. You know, yes, it's relationships with the service users and it's also relationships with all of these different entities, be it the police, showing them and acknowledging that, hey, yeah, look, we have these cards, you can give them to folks and that'll, you know, you can direct them toward these helping services instead of arresting somebody, for example, or educating around the harm reduction we are funded by the Department of Health, so we're fairly connected to the Department of Health on an ongoing basis. You know, this program is growing at such an exponential rate, particularly since the end of July when that drug alert came out. That, you know, we're in all honesty, we're we're in constant communication because we need more support. And support is a very broad word there. So, yeah, honestly, we pretty much work with all levels and they're crucial to our functioning. We could absolutely not do this work without them. No chance. And I think that with, with anything, when you're trying to accomplish something, especially a big task, like tackling a challenge like this, education becomes really important. And that's one of the things that you guys do is educate people. You mentioned before you do presentations. Who are the types of groups that you would provide this education to? In all honesty, anybody. We've completed trainings in such a variety of places. I was quite literally in a warehouse in Donovan's, you know, at 7 a.m. a couple weeks ago. If any group is asking, we are so happy to provide that. People who use drugs are literally everywhere. They are around us. They are people that we know and talk to. It is not this other group that exists over there. So it's important that anybody and everybody has this knowledge. So there's, there's not really any type of business or organization that we won't go to, it's important that as many people as possible participate in this, get the info, get the knowledge, because then they are better prepared to act. And again, this is a life or death situation, and we want to make sure that people live. Um, so going around is part of that. Now, a big part of the education, too, though, is talking to the folks who use our service. People who use drugs are on the front line of this overdose crisis they're the first responders and they are the ones that are teaching their peers. And I think it's really important to highlight that, like, that is not us. You know, we support that in any which way possible with information, pamphlets, but we rely on those folks. For every one person who's brave enough to come in to swap, because again, they've been so traumatized that nobody comes in trusting us, and rightfully so. We are supporting their knowledge exchange and learning in any which way possible, because for every one person who is brave enough to come into swap and comfortable enough to come into swap or give it a chance, there are probably 20, 30, 40 folks who aren't. So people who are comfortable using our service, they also act as a bridge 
to the folks that would never interact with social service systems and us as a program. Because in all honesty, we it doesn't matter how people get supplies. It just matters that they get them. And I think that there's a level of understanding that we may not have if you're not from that community or you don't see that community on a day-to-day basis. There's probably a lot of misconceptions. To our listeners that are listening and probably hearing about this firsthand, really, in an in-depth way for the first time, what would you encourage them to think about if they see somebody who's struggling with this or they know that this is part of our community? Like, what, what, do, what do we need to know as individuals that aren't directly affected by it but are indirectly part of the community where it's happening? I know it's a general answer, but kindness and respect goes a long way. Oftentimes, people who use drugs are treated as subhuman. They're looked at as disposable. Um, you know, they're ridiculed, discriminated against, all of those types of things. So simply k- kindness. Kindness goes such a long way. Acknowledging that folks exist instead of, you know, walking by them. Those little things are actually the big things. Human decency, common sense. And those things have not been afforded, unfortunately, to people who may look like they use drugs. Because there's a lot of judgment, there's stereotyping, etc. And Unfortunately, you know, people have an idea of what somebody who uses drugs might look like in their head, and folks who match that are much more stigmatized. Yeah. For example, me, you don't look at me and say, oh, drug user. You don't. And I know people don't. However, that doesn't mean that that is necessarily true. That makes a big difference. That is so much privilege right there. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, treating people, like I said, basic kindness and respect human decency that is where society needs to start i think yeah and then you know people face all sorts of challenges they some people can face physical challenges that lead them to different obstacles in life some people mental health challenges some people with addiction and how they manifest it requires empathy and compassion from from people so i just i just wanted to say thank you so much for uh, taking the time today this is uh, one of those interviews where i get a chance to learn a lot and i really appreciate you taking the time and and having the patience to walk me through everything so that we can share this important message with people so that they can have a better idea of of what we're facing as a community. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Much appreciated. Today, we're learning about addictions with the SWAP and the U-Turn Drop-In Center programs here in the province. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. Today we're learning about the complex challenges associated with addiction and speaking with experts from the SWAP program and the U-Turn Drop-In Center here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's get back to the show. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the show. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on your show. Uh, no problem at all. It's, it's an important topic and you're doing some important work. Maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, my name is Jeff Bohr. I am the executive director of the U-Turn Drop-In Center, which is a drop-in center in Harbour, Newfoundland. Uh, we offer support everybody that's affected by substance use alcohol and disorder. Uh, we're open 12 to 4, Monday to Friday for drop-ins. Uh, we also do one-on-one peer support. Uh, we have a number of recovery meetings that use our facility as well. Uh, so, and uh, I guess um, I'm, that's my daytime job, but I'm also a member of the CCSA, Canadian Centers uh, Substance Use and Addictions, uh, they do have a lead experience working group, it's called Scalavala. Uh, I am a part of that, and I'm also, as a right now, here of the recovery, provincial recovery council, and I also sit on a number of other uh, 
number of other committees that uh, basically is facing the challenges of both uh, substance uh, disorder within our province. Yeah, that's right. And uh, you, you're a great person to talk to about this because not only are you involved with all these committees and the organization that you run, but you also have some lived experience. Can you give me a bit of a, a history of your background? Uh, well, for me, uh, I guess I'm a card carrying alcoholic. I worked in the construction field for 15 years. Uh, back before they had uh, health and safety with Beaks, therefore he was able to dabble in some stuff and able to work. Uh, but back in 2002, I had a worker in injury, so therefore I couldn't work, so I was able to drink 24-7. Uh, the doctors put me on that wonder drug back in 2002, uh, early 2000s, and then basically that's when my life took a tailspin. So I basically would purchase that Doxycontin and never really basically getting to whatever way I can on a wheel dealing just went down that rapid hole off uh, of addiction. You know, I dabbled with drugs prior to this, but uh when I took Oxycontin I pretty much just nailed right from the get go. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh that's the challenge for people these days is I don't think people can understand how addiction works if they've never experienced it themselves. And so one of the things that U Turn does is it offers a safe haven for individuals and families that are dealing with addiction. How does that concept resonate with the people that you're working with to be a safe place for them? Uh, well, a lot of people say, this is my sanctuary. This is where I come where there's no judgment. Uh, come in and uh, everybody there, most of the people that I meet here is either land or living or got a family member that's affected by their loved one's addiction or, or whatever. So when we come in, when they come into a place like that, no judgment, no stigma, and also, uh, a lot of people don't understand that, uh, okay, just explain a bit of my story with opiates. Uh, yeah, you said you had a tooth pull this morning or a tooth, tooth uh, dental work. Mm-hmm. So if you take some and the doctor put you on a prescription, then all of a sudden, if you got a dick that hurts now, the next thing you're hooked. And within six or seven months, the doctor cuts you off cold turkey, you're going to withdraw, and eventually you're going to do that rabbit hole of buy it around the streets. I guess back when I was going to school, when you think about alcoholic or drug addict, I'm a person that's homeless, or uh, go to the line trench coat, drinking out of a barrel paper bag. Uh, that's not the case, right? Never was the case, but uh, that's the visual that I had. But they had that that all walks like substance use disorder don't discriminate, right? Right. Everybody is like any other disorder. And so there's different approaches towards how we're going to address addiction within a population. Some people are looking at harm reduction and other people are looking at abstinence. What's the philosophy behind your group? Uh, for me, uh, I try not to use incomplete abstinence myself. I choose that for my recovery. Uh, but for me, I try not to look at the lens of harm reduction or complete abstinence. I look at wellness. Let's look at the person's wellness. Is he better today than he was yesterday? Uh, harm reduction, hopefully their goal is to eventually go to absence. If not, we will walk out of Saudia through your journey and tell you whatever route you want to take, right? So I guess the word that I kind of use rather than harm reduction, lead absence as well. So let's look at the person's wellness. That, that's exactly why I wanted to chat with you today because that's what this whole show is about. And wellness is a broad sphere of different things. It means being as good as you can be given your current circumstances. And I think one of the reasons why your organization is so successful is you emphasize peer support. Why is that model so important in helping these individuals? Uh, 
I'll just use a couple of examples. This one guy came in, he shared a bigger heat story with me, and I just said, well, boy, that's just a part of the game that we're playing. And we had a general conversation around it. He said, well, I've seen somebody that was uh, never had lived experience, and he was kind of, like, shocked. So, like, sometimes when you come in and you share some of their stories with me, or through some of their baggage in their past, like, uh, I probably done similar things myself. I just one lucky ones never got caught. So therefore, I don't judge them for the things that you know with his lack of addiction because that's a part of their illness, right? And they're not that person no more. And a lot of people that I meet that uh, do get in a place of recovery, they want to give back to me anyway. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's, you know, they're probably extremely grateful for the help that they got to pull them out of that hole and, and to be able to, to help them along the way. What are some of the different techniques that you use to help people? Because obviously addiction is just one of those really, really challenging health conditions to face. Uh, you got to have an open mind, right? Uh, one of the things is uh, I did do some schooling at Riverall uh, University, I got a certificate in addiction studies. Uh, a lot of times what I learned there goes on the back burner and they take it out and use it when need be. However, uh, for me, it is basically, I got no trouble sharing a part of my story with anybody that comes in, right? So if I share a bit of my story, uh, in a way, he says, well, if Jeff is vulnerable to me, I'm going to be vulnerable to him. And that's, I guess, one of the things that kind of works for us because they're looking at me saying, well, if Jeff can do it, maybe I can do it. And, uh, and like I said, we can understand uh, where we're coming from. It's so interesting you say that because in the peer support model, we used to use it in the offshore with psychological health. And, you know, sometimes when, especially you came from a construction background, there can be a lot of stigma around being vulnerable. And so I think that's really important. When we look at types of addictions that are around in our province, maybe you can enlighten us. What are some of the struggles that people are facing or what types of substances are we addicted to? I don't know, surprisingly enough, I surprisingly enough, I suppose, but uh, back when I started, probably this... Well, it started around our kitchen table around 15 years ago. So probably about, I would say, 12 years ago, it was crystal meth kind of like huge in the island. Uh, I found during COVID, uh, crystal meth coming back again. That could be one of the things, the reason why I think uh, it came back is because of the low traffic flow. So therefore, people started making it at home, right? People are going to use regardless. And I guess with a way, and that's another thing, like people that come to you, turn after in that circle, people, we don't hold no judgment. Uh, like we know fully well know that is her very addictive behavior, right? It's not the person. But nobody chooses to be addicted. Yeah, that's right. And it's not just the individual that can suffer in these situations. Can you give me some examples of how somebody has been able to seek help has, has not only improved their life, but their relationships and their family and, and you know, the rest of the world around them? Uh, well, I was in town there uh, to the harm reduction summit. Uh, I think it was last week, October or something. And uh, I talked into a girl at speaking to, and like six years ago, uh, I just met her through the Gray Center. And through our conversation, she went back to school. She got a social work degree. And now she's working with an organization in St. John's helping people with substance use disorder. So that's one example of there is a way out about. Uh, there's times we went back to court. We went to court with people. Uh, Tammy do that a lot because there's a lot of moms going to court. We end up getting their children back. 
encourage people to get back in the workforce. Uh, we kind of encourage people sometimes to go back to school to get their high school or probably encourage them to go get a trade. So we kind of encourage them and we come to the other side of them and they're a path to wellness, right? And, and that is a part of their wellness. So rather than being a burden to society, now they're not the member within society. Uh-huh. So one of the things that I've read about is the 12-step community. Can you explain a little bit about that? Uh, well, 12 steps recovery is something that we've been around for 80 years. I started with Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not a spokesperson for Alcoholics Anonymous, but I do follow the 12 step model. Uh, so if you look up uh, 12 steps in recovery, I uh, use the same same 12 steps. The only first step that's changed differently. So to use it for anxiety, to use depression, overeating, narcotics, murders, use it. So there's a whole branch of organizations that that use the 12-step model. So basically, after step one, the rest are just never, ever change. So step one, you just change, uh, say, our middle powers over alcohol that would like to cover marriageable. So in another program, it actually really out powers over my depression would be like to cover marriageable. So if you meet your powers over your depression, so therefore you're going to do something about your depression. So it's not only recovery from everything, you know, I, I think that's that's important to know that, you know, the approaches that you're taking are validated approaches. They're based on peer support. They're based on lived experience. These are all really important things. From your philosophical standpoint, you're seeing this. You've been involved in this world for quite a while in this province. Is the problem with addiction getting worse in the province? And if so, what do we need to do? Well, I remember I, I jumped out on the lane say a lot of times when we talk about substance disorder, we forget about alcohol. Alcohol is still the number one factor within Newfoundland, Labrador, and across Canada. There were over 17,000 alcohol-related deaths and 8,000, 8, almost 8,000 opiate overdoses. Here it is, we got an opiate pandemic, but alcohol is currently the hidden thing. So alcohol still is the number one killer, still uh, the number one that causes the government a lot of money. A lot of people don't realize it, but... Each drink that's sold in Newfoundland and Labrador costs the government 32 cents a week. So they're not making money now. Yes, they're probably making a lot of revenue up front. However, at the end of the day, by the time they pay legal fees, uh, hospital fees, and all this stuff, basically it's costing the government every drink 32 cents a drink. You know, there's links to long-term health conditions as well. That's just acute situations that put people in this sort of dangerous situation. So... Yes, there is, there is a lot of challenges with it, and it is ingrained in our community, especially going into this time of year. If somebody's listening to this, how can they evaluate themselves to say, I have a challenge or a problem or an addiction, and I probably need to get some help? So the first question I ask, can you predict the outcome when you take your first drug of choice, whether it's the first drink or the first whatever drug you use? Yes or no? You say no, and then it goes on to the next year. I said, if somebody asks you to stop, uh, would you be able to stop? If somebody said, can you give it up for a month? Uh, they say, well, no, I, I said, do you get defensive? Or, yeah, I guess defensive. Like, who are you to tell me I can't drink or you for the next month? So then I say, uh, usually, well, that's two. And uh, so maybe you might have a problem, but you can't predict the outcome. Uh, your judgment, you get defensive when somebody asks you about your using or drinking. And I guess uh, the last one is, do you uh, 
hide away your drinking and using? And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, you hide it away from family members of love and how much you're consuming. And he say, yes. I said, well, I think you need to sign up. Right? I can't say that you've got a trouble. That's something you've got to come to terms with yourself. However, uh, for this trainee's question, you guys answer. That's a pretty good telltale sign that you may have a problem. Yeah, alcohol is a huge part of the celebrations people have, as well as maybe other drug use, depending on the group of people or the circles. What advice do you have for people to look out for the people that they care about? Uh, one is uh, not sold. Uh, U-Turn is a distributor from not sold within the exception bay north area. Also, uh, you just go out and you should probably go online and look at Nuclear and Labrador on the lot zone. You find the distributed site close to you. Have an American kit on hand. Uh, reason being is if, uh, it's better to have it, not uh, need it, but it's better not to have it and need because uh, you're saving life. And a lot of times, well, we found, uh, according to some studies and stuff that I looked at across the country, it is. Uh, I don't know where they got the terminology to, but you call them weekend warriors, right? So like yourself, now maybe you and a bunch of your buddies get together during the holidays. So, hey, let's go and do a little boat. Now we've never done it since we left university or whatever. So you get together and do a boat and have a bet on it. Do, well, what is it going to go down? Because your immune system is not really used to that high dose. So uh, I think there was one place in Alberta, like all the guys got together for a wedding. It was all with universities together and five overdose and would have died. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the challenges. I mean, that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this topic is because those types of circumstances appear to be happening at a greater frequency in our community than they used to. And for, for folks that are looking to get help, how do they get a hold of you? Uh, well, they can uh, look out of the light. You turn drop your stuff, center carbon here. Uh, we pretty much should drop up. Should come up on the website. We do have a web page. There is a phone number to contact. If you call the phone number for Apple's, uh, my cell number basically on the circle. So uh, you get my cell number, call me, the invoice mail. I will get back to you ASAP because uh, I could be into a meeting or whatever. But I usually, even if I take a day off, uh, I usually check the phone at the end of the day. So I mean, say so you still got the provincial war, boy. You got eight on that pretty much covers mental health addiction as well now because some people didn't like it, but healthcare is healthcare. Okay, well, I got a personal question for you to finish up. How does it make you feel to be able to help out people go through the same situation that you struggle with in your life? Uh, at the end of the day, when you put you in, I'm, you know, I feel good about helping somebody. However, it do come with consequences. Uh, about a year ago, I stopped counting that there was 40 plus people that passed away since we opened U-Turn that I had contact with whether it's through Grace Center, Harbor Grace, or somewhere in the room in recovery. And like I say, about 90% of it was either uh, opiate poisoning or suicide. So for me, yes, you feel kind of good that you help one person. However, the wounds that didn't make it, it is a heavy burden to carry, right? For telling yourself, but it's very difficult because we have to be there to support our loved ones at the center, part of our U-turn family. So we got to be there for support for them. So we don't really get proper time to grieve ourselves. And uh, usually, when everything's all said and done, down and down, then we go 
we come home set there, and then we pretty much start to grieve and process ourselves because a couple of things with peer support that a lot of people don't uh, fully understand is one, uh, for me, uh, I'm dragging out my past a number of times a day while I'm sharing my experience, trying to cope with somebody. So therefore, I'm constantly picking up at, at, at my wool, right? So I'm bringing that up a number of times a day. Uh, so that's still a bit hard to carry, which I don't really do, but still, when you think about it, you're bringing up stuff that you don't, you're not proud of, right? But you know is that you're bringing it up for a, pro- a good reason. Uh, and the other one is when you, like I said, when I'm vulnerable, they're vulnerable, uh, there is a connection that comes there. There's more personal than, I guess, if you wouldn't see a psychiatrist or psychologist or have peer support uh, workers, I like we're more, I can't say body body, but we got that bond that is different than any other professional. The professional barrier that sort of separates people isn't there because part of the effectiveness of your treatment is to be able to get past that, to open people up. I could see that. You know, compassion fatigue is a very, very real thing. And I think that that's a really poignant thing to mention is that sometimes we don't realize the challenges that our caregivers give um, and then the struggles other people are going through. And I think that's a really insightful aspect of what we've chatted about today. Jeff, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're really busy. I know you have a lot of important things you need to be dealing with and individuals you need to be helping. But I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your story with us today. Thanks, Mike. Thank you to Emily and Jeff for joining me today and sharing their invaluable insights into the world of addiction support. The real challenges of addiction extend far beyond the individual users. They ripple through our communities and deeply affect the lives of their loved ones. These challenges demand a comprehensive approach, blending empathy, support, and practical help. Programs like SWAP and U-Turn aren't just resources, they're beacons of hope. They remind us that every individual struggling with addiction deserves dignity, support, and the opportunity to reclaim their lives. For those out there that might be facing these struggles, whether personally or within your circle, remember that reaching out is the first step to recovery. If you or someone you know needs help, you can connect with SWAP through their various regional contacts in Newfoundland and Labrador. For direct support from U-Turn Drop-In Center, you can visit their website at uturnaddictions.org. These programs are here to help, and they offer a range of services and support that are tailored to the individual's needs. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of The Wall Show on your VOCM.